Uh, it's been a few months since I was here last, and uh, I love my church uh, down in Gaithersburg dearly. Um, when I walk into those doors, I usually have about 20 things I'm thinking about I need to do that day. When I come here, I just get to worship and preach, and it's just so refreshing. I'm just singing earlier, oh, lay my worries down right there with the rest of you, and was just so refreshed. So it's always so good to be with you. And um, I love Alb, like you said, he, we've known each other for a long time, and um, I love him because when we get together, we laugh a lot. It's good for my soul. Uh, Albert's such a sincere brother in the Lord. He just sincerely loves God and loves you. And that's just a pretty great combo to have in your pastor. Um, Albert's also risky. Like Albert will go out on a limb and take a risk. And the latest example is when I asked him what I should preach on today, he said, just whatever you're excited about. I thought, this is great. Buckle up, y'all. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> uh, he has taken the seatbelt off. I can preach on whatever I want. So here we go. No, I'm, um, I have been uh, lately, as I reflected on that, um, the Lord has been doing something in me and just appreciating more deeply the fact that Christ is not only risen, Christ is reigning. Um, we don't sort of put the ministry of Jesus on pause between the resurrection and the second coming. Uh, he is still active. He's still at work. And the Bible tells us a whole lot about what he's doing and what that means for us. Um, so before I get uh, much further into that, I want to um, read a, a text, a couple of them for you. Uh, I'm approaching this a little differently. If you've heard me preach before, or I'm sure Albert is often like this. Usually I'm just in, I'm in one passage and we're just looking at what does that text mean for us. I'm going to be in a few different places and I'll reference a lot of scriptures this morning, but uh, I want to anchor all that and just the account we have in the gospels uh, and in Acts of, of Christ's ascension. So I want to read that to you. Uh, the, the gospel writer, Luke, gives us the most detail uh, of all the gospel writers. And he does that in his gospel, the gospel of Luke. But then he does it again when he writes the book of Acts. And he sort of looks at it a little bit differently, adds some different details. So I want to read those two passages for you. If you've got a Bible, you can open it to Luke 24. And I'll read verses 50 through 53. <clears throat> and then right after that, I'm going to read um, a few pages to the right in Acts 1. And I'll read verses 6 through 11. So first, Luke 24, starting in verse 50. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Now in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they, that is the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. 
and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Father in heaven, Lord, we look to you this morning. Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, as we reflect on these truths in your word, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see Jesus afresh. Lord, I know those of us gathered in this room this morning, we know certainly of Jesus. Uh, Most of us know and have a personal relationship with Jesus. Lord, we can so easily wander and so many other things preoccupy our time and attention. And uh, when that happens, it's really detrimental to our souls. And so, Father, I pray that today we would just see Jesus afresh, that we would get a, a fresh glimpse of his glory in a way that would renew our hearts. And it's in his mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I think as we think about the the ministry of Jesus, perhaps his ascension, uh, for my two cents, is is the most neglected aspect uh, of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, We often talk about, as I said, the resurrection at Easter, uh, and, and then at times act as if Jesus sort of handed the ball off to the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and then we'll see him again when he returns. Um, And we we skip over this crucial step that at the ascension of Jesus, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. I think it's good for us occasionally to pause and think about not only what Christ has done, like we did at Easter and Good Friday and times like that, uh, not only think about what Christ will do in our future, but to think about what Christ is doing. And if I was going to say it simply uh, and concisely, I would say at Easter, we celebrate the truth that Christ is risen. And when we reflect on the ascension, we're remembering that Christ is reigning. Now, we neglect this, as I said, to our detriment because this truth is life-giving to Christians in all kinds of ways. As a matter of fact, if you were to flip through your New Testament, and, and as you do, just ask yourself, uh, you know, how, how are you doing? Let me just ask you that before we go any further. How are you doing this morning? Uh, I wonder if anyone else like me is struggling a bit with some, some anxiety. Uh, maybe you're struggling a bit with, with some fear. And you just look around at the state of the world and you think about the environment you're in and maybe you're tempted to be fearful. Uh, maybe if we're honest with each other, man, our prayer life is, is struggling. Maybe it's not what we want it to be. Maybe there's someone in your life that you're wrestling to extend forgiveness toward. Uh, All those things I just described, which at various points can certainly be true in my soul, when the apostles in the New Testament addressed the early church and they address young Christians and they're trying to help them deal with those dynamics in their soul, over and over again, one of the things they point them to is the ascension and reign of Jesus. And so if we want to derive the benefit of the reign of Christ in our souls today, it sort of behooves us to take the time to really think about, okay, what is this? Uh, What does the Bible teach about it? What does it matter? And as we do that, then I think our souls will really begin to benefit uh, from that reality. So I want to consider this this morning under these just two simple questions. What is the ascension? And then secondly, what does it matter? Now, when we think about what it is, um, I want to acknowledge it, it, it does take a little work 
I think sometimes one of the reasons we don't uh, remember this and we don't derive the benefit from it is because it, it takes a little work to get into. I mean, we are talking about the mystery of the fact that a man was and is God and dwelt among us and now is ascended and is in heaven. That's a pretty mysterious set of things, right, that I just talked about. Uh, And so we need to sort of put on our, our thinking caps, you might say, for just a few minutes and maybe just go to school for a second on the person of Christ, Now, thankfully, uh, there's probably no area of Christian theology that's gotten more careful attention and reflection in all the history of the church than this this area of theology. Uh, Who is Christ, the person of Christ? And at the risk of coming off like a professor this morning, uh, let me just lecture you for three minutes, four minutes, and we're going to talk about the person of Christ as simple as one, two, three, four, okay? Okay. Here we go. One, two, three, four. Christ is one person who has two natures, who fulfills three offices in four historical moments, or you might say movements. So Christ is is one person. Jesus is the son of God. He is one. He is whole. He is one person. Jesus has two natures. Unlike any other being, he has both a human and a divine nature. Now, those natures are are not sort of separated from one another. Uh, They're also not kind of collapsed into each other, but they're distinct and they coexist in the person of Christ. And he also fulfills these, these three offices of prophet, priest, and king. So you can remember this in the ministry of Jesus. If you look through the gospels, he was, he was prophet. He would speak God's word to God's people. And often people were just kind of in awe of his authority and, and, and the truthfulness of what he proclaimed resonated in their hearts as he, as he spoke God's word. He's a prophet. But he's also a, a priest. He, he mediates. He is the only mediator between God and men. So you might remember, we, we talk about on Good Friday when the, the work of the atonement was done on the cross in the temple, uh, the curtain is torn in two. And that signifies that Christ, through his atoning work, has made a way for men and women to, to approach God. Uh, he is, uh, has a priestly ministry as he mediates before God. But he's also king. He is King Jesus. He is reigning. He is enthroned. All authority and and power has been given to him. And so when we come to this moment, kind of coming full circle uh, of his ascension, it's the moment you could say when Jesus fully and finally assumes the authority that the Father has given him. It's kind of like his coronation service. Somebody told me that England's going to celebrate the coronation of a new king pretty soon. This is the formal uh, moment when he will assume that, that authority. Uh, that pales into comparison of what happened at the ascension of Jesus when he is coronated, when he takes on the authority that, Christ, that God the Father has given him. I think there's probably nowhere in the Bible where this is stated more succinctly just in one passage than in Philippians chapter 2. And in verse 7, it says, Christ Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So now that we've kind of established that that theological foundation, let me go back to Luke 24 and take a closer look at how it all happened. First, it says this happened at Bethany. This is a spot at the Mount of Olives. It's just outside of Jerusalem. And this is a frequent stop on the tour of Jesus' ministry. So if you go flip through the Gospels this afternoon, you'll see Bethany pop up, the Mount of Olives pop up throughout his ministry. This is where he often had gone away with his disciples to instruct them more more privately. Uh, It's where he went the night he was betrayed in the garden when he asked his disciples to pray with him and they fall asleep. But mountains in the Bible, not just in the gospels, but in the Bible in general are are significant places. They're, They're places where God often meets with his people. And so you might remember Moses um, and the people, they saw God on Mount Sinai. Uh, Elijah encountered God on Mount Sinai as well. David and Israel worshiped God on Mount Zion. Peter and James and John saw Jesus in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so it's no surprise that this coronation moment takes place on the Mount of Olives. And when Jesus gathers them there, It says Jesus lifts up his hands and blesses him, blesses them. Now, can I just say, just stepping back for a moment, what a beautiful picture of our good shepherd, that on the day of his coronation, the day that he will assume all of his authority, he's blessing others. That's just like him. Uh, And it says he he raises his hands as he does, uh, and, and it takes so long that he starts being carried up into heaven while the blessing is still in progress. And at this point, Luke gives a little more detail in Acts than he had in his gospel. In Acts 1.9, it says, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So just like a mountain is a representation of a place where God meets people, a cloud is a sign of God's presence as well. So you might remember the pillar of cloud led Israel through the wilderness. Uh, The cloud filled the tabernacle. Uh, when the people were in the wilderness. Uh, you might remember the, the, the uh, cloud that filled the temple when Solomon dedicated it. All signs of God's presence. In the book of Daniel, Daniel has a vision. And it's a vision of the Son of Man coming with the clouds. It says in verse 13 of Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented, presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed." So in a a way, all these themes, all these shadows of the presence of God with people on these mountains and the presence of God with his people in the cloud is being brought together as Jesus, the son of God, ascends to the right hand of the father. 
And it says that as the son ascends, as Jesus ascends, Acts says the disciples stood there gazing into heaven. And then these two angels show up with flashy clothes and they've got some rhetorical questions. To read through the gospels, I'm always kind of fascinated by the the rhetorical questions these angels ask people. Like you remember on Easter, they show up and Mary Magdalene is bawling her eyes out. She's in a cemetery, open grave, crying. And they're like, why are you crying? I think to myself, it seems pretty normal to cry at a cemetery, you know? Uh, now, the, these disciples have gathered and, and their, <laughs> their savior is ascending and they're just standing there gaping with their mouth, mouths open. And these guys are like, hey, why are you looking up in the sky? Seems, I think that's what I'd be doing. But the reason they have this question is because just before this moment, Jesus had given them their marching orders. You remember that? He said, look, I'm going to be with you always. And now I want you to go and make disciples. And so it's as if these angels are saying, look, you've got, you've got work to do. You don't need to just stand here anymore. That's important because they're saying that the, the way that Jesus ascends uh, not only tells us something about his presence with us now, it also tells us something about the way he'll return. They say, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go. It's interesting. These guys had been with Jesus for 40 days after his resurrection, and he just keeps showing up. He shows up at dinner a couple times. He shows up and has breakfast with them. He shows up in Jerusalem and, and addresses a crowd of hundreds. So all these eyewitnesses just keep, you know, they're just doing life and they just see Jesus come and go and pop in and pop out. And these guys are saying, uh, hey, look, this is, this is really it now, okay? He's not just gonna show up tomorrow. He's actually going somewhere. He's ascending to the right hand of the Father. And when he returns next time, he will return fully and finally, visibly, and bodily. Now, back in the gospel, Luke describes how they respond to all this, and it's very unique. You think about what you know about the disciples and how they often respond to the things Jesus does. Uh, they, they so often just don't get it, right? Uh, he, he is talking about the kingdom he's going to establish through the gospel, and they think he's going to establish a political kingdom. Uh, he, he's talking about uh, the ways he's teaching and healing, and they just don't seem to put it together. And so when he is betrayed, they take off. Uh, at the crucifixion on uh, Calvary, as best we can tell, John and Mary are the only ones who show up. The other ones are so afraid they're going to be seen as accomplices. Uh, accomplices. They're not anywhere around. They're fearful. They're, they're often understand, misunderstand. But here... It says, after seeing all this, in verse 52, it says, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. That's uncharacteristic for them. Now, why would the disciples be so excited that Jesus is gone? He has just said, I will never leave you or forsake you, and then he left. Why would they worship him with great joy? They worship him with great joy because this time they know where he's going. They know that Jesus is leaving them physically, but he's going to the right hand of the Father so he can be with them spiritually. And that leads into, okay, what does all this matter? 
Jesus' ascension continues and elevates his ministry in several ways. And I'll give you just a few this morning. First is very similar to what Albert preached on Easter Sunday, outstanding message. Jesus' bodily absence from us intensifies his spiritual presence with us. When you think about the ongoing ministry of Jesus, one aspect of his ongoing ministry is a ministry of presence. Because he is physically absent from us, he's more intensely present with us by the Spirit. Remember, he said, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And then he leaves, and none of the disciples seem to be bothered by that. It's because he has told them that if I'm apart from you physically, that's better for you. Because then I'll send my Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you spiritually. Because he isn't confined to an, a, a body on earth, he can be present by the Spirit with all of his people. Now, that's not just an esoteric point. That's really practically helpful. <laughs> Think about it in your evangelism. You're trying to reach your neighbor. And I've thought this. I don't know if you've ever thought this. Man, it would just, if they could actually see the God I'm proclaiming to them. You know, if they could, like if Jesus was just still on earth, you know, all those crowds followed him back then. I think if he was still here now, people might be more likely to, to follow him. You just practically do the math, right? There's six plus billion people on planet earth. What are the odds that Jesus is going to have an opportunity in his physical body to stop by and have a chat with your neighbor? Pretty unlikely. But because Jesus is physically absent from us, he can keep his promise to be spiritually present with us even more personally and more powerfully. He can minister by his spirit through his word to your lost neighbor. Is practically helpful for us for the comfort of his people. And I wonder if you've ever thought, man, if I could just see Jesus face to face when I'm struggling, he would comfort me. Man, if I could just like take hold of him and, and see him and hold him and hear his, his actual voice. But that creates all kinds of problems too. Let's just imagine that were the case and Jesus were kind of uh, continuing his ministry of, of preaching and, and healing and he's doing that all around uh, the world. It would actually create uh, a lot of problems for us and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But because he's absent from us, he can be ministering to us all equally, all at the same time because, because he can do so by the Holy Spirit. Jesus also continues his ministry and elevates his ministry in the ascension as a prophet. Uh, the Lord Jesus rules by his word. The risen King Jesus ministers to his people by his word. We get a picture of this in Revelation 1. This is the only time that the physical appearance of Jesus is described in the whole Bible after the ascension. The next time it happens is Revelation 1, and it says this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters." 
In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This sword emerging from the mouth of Jesus is a picture of his word. In Ephesians 6, the word is called the sword of the spirit. And so Christ's royal word is his written word. It is the means by which he rules his people. One old theologian calls it the scepter in the hand of King Jesus. It's also the means by which he creates his people. James in um, chapter one, verse 18 says, of his own will, he brought us forth. As he gave us life, he brought us forth. How? By the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So King Jesus creates his kingdom and rules the people of his kingdom by his royal word. And so that's why we, we treasure his word. Uh, not because we were just sort of intellectual, bookish types, and we just like to sit around and read. Maybe that's true of some of us. Uh, maybe it's because, uh, it's not because we just want to sort of solve the riddles of the interpretations of the Bible, or we get sort of caught up in these fascinations. That's not why we treasure God's word. We treasure it because it's given to us by the one who saved us. So uh, just like if you're married in this room, or if you're in a relationship, or Maybe you're, you're engaged and your significant other has written you a love letter. Well, man, we treasure those, don't we? <laughs> uh, you, you open those immediately. You might hang on to them for years. That's not because you sort of worship uh, the letter. It's because the letter represents the heart of the person who loves you, right? So we don't worship this book, but man, we love it because it comes to us from Jesus. And it's how he tells us he loves us. It's how he rules us with a benevolent rule by his word. Then he, disciple, or he commissions others to carry on the work of teaching what they had been taught by him. Ephesians 4 says, when he ascended, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. It's an incredible thing that you don't have to wonder what the will of the king is. I was talking earlier about the benefit of him being physically absent. Well, just imagine if he was continuing his teaching ministry right now, man, we get so fooled already, even though each of us has a, uh, most of us have a, a video camera in our pockets. How often do the testimony of live events get skewed even we can see it on video, we can hear reports of it on the news. Can you imagine if Jesus is still, his teaching is limited to what he can say physically? I mean, you might think, oh, you know, he, he came to a, a local arena and I went and saw him and here's what he said. And your neighbor might say, well, I was on a business trip last month and I saw him, I heard him teach there and, and here's what he said there. And, and, and it seems to contradict what you're saying. You'd have all these actually confusing, troubling difficulties trying to sort out the things that Jesus was saying. We don't have to deal with any of that. <laughs> what Christ has given us is simple and clear, and it's in one book. <laughs> it's such a blessing to us that he rules us by his word. 
he also continues his ministry as king. The Lord Jesus, the the reigning Lord Jesus rules over our enemies. It is not enough to have a savior who's compassionate, but powerless. Uh, When you're drowning, you don't need a therapist. You need a lifeguard, right? When you're drowning, you don't need somebody to come to you and say, hey, what's it like to drown? Tell me about that, right? You need someone who's powerful enough to get in there and get you out. Well, what you and I need isn't, isn't just empathy. We need salvation. We need deliverance. And Jesus is not only here to empathize with you, although he does, he's here to save you. And the one who is here to save you has no rival power. Uh, There's no enemy that you could possibly have that Jesus is like, oh, I'm not sure about that one. That's going to be a tough go. That battle is going to be difficult. There is no rival authority, rival dominion that could cause him to question whether he will be victorious over that particular enemy in your life. The psalmist in Psalm 110 says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. This is all over the New Testament. Let me just read a few examples in Hebrews 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 1 Peter 3, 22, Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Ephesians 1, 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Friends, it should be such a comfort to us that whatever opposition you may face, you can know that its power is limited that Satan is a dog on a chain, that he has a certain way in this world for now, but only within the bounds of what your good heavenly king has allowed. Greater, we say, greater is he who is in you than he who's in the world. King Jesus rules over every other authority. And then lastly, Jesus continues to reign as priest. That means that Jesus intercedes for us. He intercedes for you. You ever been in a situation where you were just confused and you really needed somebody else to walk you through it? Maybe um, a legal difficulty. Man, you walked into that courtroom. You don't know the legal system. This is imposing. This is scary. This is confusing. Well, hopefully you had walking in with you an attorney who is not nervous. (laughs) If you look over and you see your attorney's nervous, he's probably ought to get a new one, right? Uh, They're walking in with a sense of confidence. I know what's going on here and I can guide you through it. Maybe you've you've purchased uh, a home before, biggest purchase most of us will ever make in our lives. You have an agent, a real estate agent who knows the situation. They do this every day. You do this a couple times in your life. They can walk you through that process. They can negotiate on your behalf. They can show you what all that looks like. When you're anxious and don't quite know what's going on, they can lead you through it. Think about it like this. In the incarnation, God comes to man. But in the ascension, man goes to God. As of that moment, 
there's a human being at the right hand of the Father pleading our case. And he's advocating for us. He's interceding for us as one who knows what it's like to suffer. As one who knows what it's like to be overcome with with anxieties and troubles. As one who knows what it's like to experience death. As one who knows what it's like to be tempted. So that now the frailty of human life has a voice in the court of heaven. Hebrews 9, 24 says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. There's an old Scottish pastor that said, The dust of the earth now sits on the throne of heaven. So just think about this week. Maybe you might struggle at some point to wonder, man, am I really going to make it? Uh, Am I going to make it to heaven? Am I going to make it to the end of this life faithful? Hebrews 7 says, consequently, he that is Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. How do you imagine Jesus responds when you sin? When you as a, as a Christian who's trusted in Christ, who's freed from the ongoing uh, indwelling, uh, freed from the ongoing bondage of sin, but still wrestles with indwelling sin, still wrestles with that old man, that old woman at times taking hold in our lives. Um, Jesus hates sin. Jesus died for sin. Jesus doesn't want you and I to sin. But when you and I, Christian, occasionally do, Sin, how do you imagine Jesus responds? What do you imagine he does about that? 1 John 2 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So here's what Jesus Christ does, Christian, when you sin. He advocates for you at the right hand of the Father. He enters a courtroom in heaven that he is very familiar with. He walks before you a path of righteousness that he has walked perfectly as no other man ever has. And he advocates on your behalf. What do you do this week when you feel accused? Man, the enemy of our souls is so good at this at whispering lies, at whispering accusations. Romans 8, 33 says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ is risen, he is reigning, and he is interceding for you this week. Friends, when you, when you know and you get a hold of these things, it just kind of rearranges the furniture in your soul. You know? Uh, when you're clear that this is the one you're united with, this King Jesus, and his ministry is active and alive in the throne room of heaven, it just changes things. Instead of the weight of fear and guilt 
instead of anxiety, instead of unforgiveness, instead of, of prayerlessness. I think we go home a bit more like the disciples did when they saw the ascension of Jesus with worship and great joy. That change happens, I think, when we stop constantly looking deeper into ourselves and start looking to that risen and reigning Jesus. I've heard it said that, that trying to make it through life focused on yourself is like getting lost in the woods and pulling out a compass, but instead of pointing north, it just points back at you. Let's not go through life with a compass that's constantly pointing us back to ourselves. Let's go through life with a compass that is fixed on the true north of King Jesus, looking to him, the one who is reigning, the one who's ruling over your life. Father, we thank you for the ongoing ministry of the Son, who is interceding even now for Living Hope Community Church, who died for the people of Living Hope Community Church. Father, who has authority and power and dominion over every other rival who would seek to harm Living Hope Community Church. And Lord, I pray that you would set the hearts of your people afresh today on Jesus for his glory and for the good of our souls. In his name, amen.